morning, church. Are you kidding me? This is like the second real time of being in person. Good morning, church. I heard people online say it before people in here. It is good to have you guys here this morning. I'm super excited. As I told you guys in the, in the beginning, we're going to be moving into the book of Acts. And I'm excited about that study. But before we get to Acts... We got a few more people we need to, to meet in the Gospel of Luke, a spot where Jesus met with people and was telling these people that the Gospel is for everybody. The Gospel is for all. So at this time, go ahead and open up your Bibles or click on your Bibles in the book of Luke, chapter 18. And as you all know, Tim had the, Pastor Tim had the opportunity to preach last week, so I've spent a couple extra days, a couple extra weeks in this passage, and it has been... Uh, Interesting, right? It has hit much closer to home than I anticipated, way closer than I expected. So I'm looking forward to, to uh, unpacking this just a little bit. As we have looked at all of these different people over the last, I don't know, eight weeks here, we looked at the undeserving, we looked at the unqualified, we looked at the unapproachable, the unexpected, the unworthy. Uh, last week, Tim took us through the unreachable. And here's the problem, is that I've seen a part of me, and sometimes large parts of me, in all of these people. Sometimes too much of me, and every time, every study, every time we opened up these words, it has brought me to the feet of Jesus in worship. And every time I praise God that I'm not what I used to be. And sometimes we can look back, and it's easy for us to say, I am not where I used to be, so therefore I'm good. I have changed, so therefore I am good. We do it all the time, right? Do you ever do that all the time? You look back and say, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. I want you to be honest with yourselves on this. But the problem is, is sometimes when we do that, sometimes we even use the change in our life as an excuse to do the very things that we're bragging about not doing anymore. Right? Sometimes um, we say, hey, I listen to Christian music sometimes, so it's okay if I'm listening to this song that has a nice rhythm or a nice beat that I like. Who cares if it's glorifying sin? Who cares if it's blaspheming God? It doesn't matter because I listen to Christian music sometimes. Right? Sometimes we say, I went to church on Sunday, so does it really matter if I'm watching this TV show that hardens my heart? I'm good. I go to church now. And while it is something to be excited about, while it is something that we should take great joy in to be able to say, I am not where I used to be, so I am good, we must know that that is only a half-truth. And if we're not careful, that half-truth will lead us down a path of destruction. So how do we guard ourselves from that half-truth? How do we guard ourselves from death? And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus tells us. He tells us how to find life and how to avoid death. So go ahead and open to chapter 18, and we're going to pick up about halfway through that chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Go ahead and read with me. And a ruler asked him, referring to Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. 
And he said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And as we have read this passage, many of you have realized that this is the story, the account of the rich young ruler. And this account is told in all three of the synoptic gospels. And in its form, um, through looking at those forms, we come to the name the rich young ruler. All three of the accounts make mention that this man was a man of great wealth, that this man was rich, that he had great possessions. The Gospel of Matthew refers to this man as a young man. And the Greek word that was used meant a relatively young man and usually meant somebody between the ages of 24 and 40. So we know this man was probably in that window somewhere. Luke refers to this man as a ruler. And that word meant uh, one who has administrative authority, one who's an official or a leader in the community. It's used throughout Scripture in various, uh, to describe various Jewish leaders, including those in charge of the synagogue. It's used to, to describe members of the Sanhedrin. And so we think that this man was probably a civil uh, magistrate. He was probably part of um, the Sanhedrin. He was a, a Pharisee, a scribe of some sort. But therefore, since we don't have a name for this man in any of the accounts... We have simply come to know him as the rich, young ruler. And as we read this account, this event, it appears that he came with a sincere question. He was a respected person in the community. He was a man filled with talent and abilities. He was a good leader. He appears to be a man of good integrity and good behavior. He has been able to rely on his character and his conduct to achieve success in his life. He has earned respect. He has built wealth. He's achieved top positions in his community all by his own effort. He is self-reliant, and why shouldn't he be? Look at all that he has achieved in his life. Look at all that he is. And unlike so many other Pharisees and scribes that we see come before Jesus, he was not there to trick Jesus. He had a sincere question. He was not there trying to prove Jesus to be a fraud. He wasn't trying to play stump the chump with God. He actually had a real question. He truly wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. What did he need to do to go to heaven? Everything else in his life he was able to achieve. And from this point he was able. He, he already had achieved it. He was able to achieve it by hard work, by honest living, by generous giving. He assumed that some additional generous action or maybe some great sacrifice or or some uh, uh, giving to something specific would secure his place in heaven. And he simply wanted to know what it was. The rich young ruler came to Jesus wondering what he could do. But he left Jesus realizing what he was unable to do. 
the rich young ruler may be the only man in the Gospels who came to the feet of Jesus and went away in worse condition than when he arrived. He came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And think about that for a minute. All throughout our lives, we ask that same question. What must I do to go to heaven? Everyone, everyone on the face of the planet has asked that question. That question alone could lead to an entire series on world religions today. But what we're going to focus on, we're just going to focus on Christians. We're just going to focus on people who have a desire to be with Jesus, those that are seeking Jesus, those that one day have the, the hope and the desire to sing holy, holy, holy at the foot of Jesus one day. So we're going to focus on those people. We're going to focus on Christians. And if you're in church today, if you're watching, you probably fall into this category. You want to spend eternity with Jesus. And too often we are like the rich young ruler and we want to know, what do I have to do to get to the kingdom of heaven? The problem is, is by asking that question, what we really want to know, because Jesus has told us what we need to do, when we ask that question, the main thing we want to know is, what's the minimum bar I have to reach? What's the least I have to do to get to heaven, to get over the bar, to be in the kingdom? It's much like when we're in school and the teacher gives us a report. What's the first question that a student asks? How many pages does it have to be, or how many words does it have to be? Right? We, we really want to know, what are we shooting for so we get a passing grade? What are we shooting for so we can say, hey, we're good enough, and be done with this? It was the worst thing in the world when the teacher would just look at you and say, oh, there's no count. Just do your best. You're like, no, no, no. I got other things in my life. I need to see what, where I can fit this in with my life. I remember when I was in high school, somebody told me it was the three C's that hurt you. Cash, cars, and chicks. And you all have to know right now that next time I see my mom, she is going to smack me in the back of the head for saying the C word. We weren't allowed to say chicks. It was very disrespectful. I'm going to see her for Easter. I may have a black eye when I preach on Easter. Mom, it's like a pastor thing. We got three C's. We got to say it. So just be aware if that's what happened. I don't think it's child abuse anymore. I think I'm an adult now. But um, I just know I'm going to get Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Um, so anyway, here we go. Uh, we're, we're interested in giving, we're not really interested in giving our best. What we're interested in is giving just enough so we maintain space in our life for the other things that we want to do, for the other things that we're focused on. We just want to give Jesus, okay, I'm going to give you this much if that's good enough so I can do these other things over here. Jesus is no fool. Now, Jesus wasn't born yesterday. He knows our hearts and he knows our minds. And he knows exactly what we're asking before we even ask the question. He knows exactly what our heart is seeking before the words come out of our mouth. No matter how much we try to deceive ourselves on what we're asking, Jesus is not fooled. And here, Jesus knows the answer to this man's question. But before he answers it, he wants to make sure this man knows what he is unable to do. Fortunately, these lessons that Jesus is teaching this man apply to us also. So let's learn from his mistakes so hopefully we don't walk away sad when Jesus reaches out to us. And the first thing we have to know is we have to know that it is impossible to be good. It's impossible to be 
good enough. And Jesus answered him and said, there is only one who is good. So that's how Jesus starts off his response to the man. How do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? There is only one who is good. And while this was intended to point out Jesus' deity, to point out that Jesus is God and that he is the good one, it was also shattered this man's foolish idea of attaining personal goodness and merit of salvation on his own apart from God. This man assumed that he had the moral character to do whatever was required because he was good. Church, here's the problem. God has an exclusive claim on goodness. No man can make such a claim in himself. Jesus establishes the standard of goodness by pointing to God as the only one who is truly good. No one, no one is good except God alone. And throughout scripture we see places where God is defined as good. In First Chronicles we see, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. In Psalms 34, 8, we, say, we see, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Nahum, we see, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the city of trouble. And we also see in Genesis that good was used to describe, that God used to describe creation. That is how he talked about his creation. It is good. It is good. It is good. But if you also notice, he used good to describe it. Before the fall. After sin entered the world, the, world, the word good has never been truly appropriate for his creation again. That is a sobering reminder. As we go through scripture, the only thing that we see as good is God. And this man, this rich young ruler, he didn't understand that. He was a student of the law, and no doubt he participated in the Jewish sacrifices for his own sins. But somehow, he missed his need for a Savior because he thought he was good enough. And that was mistake number one, and we want to be careful we don't make that mistake. The second thing is that we have to know it's impossible to do enough good. Jesus challenges what the man thought he needed to do to make himself good. It is clear by his question that the rich young ruler feels that there is something he can do. He knows the commandments and he trusts that if he obeys them, which he believes that he's doing at that time, that he will go to heaven. So why is he asking Jesus this question in the first place? Why is he coming up to Jesus and saying, what do I have to do? The ruler's emphasis is, what do I have to do? How do I go to heaven? What is my partner? There's got to be something I can do. What is it? And if we're honest, some things never change. Because today, people like to be self-reliant. People like to have control. People like to know, um, how do I do this? How do I fix this problem? How do I solve this? And it invo- if it involves dying, we really want to take an interest in it. We really want to know, how do we control that? I know that whenever I go scuba diving... I like, I like to see that, that my, 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 my dive partner's name is Michael. I like to see that he has air and he has his extra regulator in case something happens to mine. But what do I do before I get in the water? I walk over there and I make sure it works. Because underwater is not the time to figure out your air does not work. I have never, ever gone diving with Michael and he gave me the thumbs up and said, hey, man, everything's good. And I'm like, all right. And we just jump in. I am not willing to take that chance at all. 
as much as I trust him, if there is something that I can do, especially something I can do to make sure I don't die, I usually do it. I usually take that extra step. And this man is no different. He just wanted to make sure that he did everything he needed to spend eternity in the kingdom of heaven. He believed that performing a single act or meeting some minimum requirement could guarantee his salvation. He wanted to know what it was. Simply, what do I have to do? This man had seen Jesus before. He had heard Jesus talk. He had heard Jesus teach on God. He had heard Jesus teach on the kingdom of heaven. He had heard Jesus talk on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. He had heard him teach scripture in the synagogues. He had heard him teach scripture on the mountainsides. And if you remember what the people who heard him say, nobody, no man has taught with this authority. So this man came to Jesus. Remember, he called him good teacher. And he asked with a sincere heart, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if we look in Matthew's account of the story, we get a little bit more detail into Jesus' response to this man. Jesus said to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you read your Bible, if you follow Jesus, if you follow the law of uh, Christ, the, the, the law of grace, this should throw you for a loop. This sounds like nothing Jesus has ever said before to keep the commandments. This is not in line with anything that Jesus has taught anywhere else in Scripture. And in this case, we see that Jesus wanted to awaken this arrogant man for his need for grace, for his need for the grace that only Jesus offers. And whenever, whatever life one tries to find in the law, whenever we seek to do, 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 that's all, that's all the life that we can find in the law. The problem with that is that because of sin, we will never achieve the goal of following the law perfectly. We'll never be able to check off every box and receive eternal life. In Galatians, Paul tells us this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So why are those who rely on the law cursed? Because there's no way that anybody can do everything the law requires. If you spend your life chasing and chasing and chasing the law and doing this and doing that and trying to do this and trying to earn your salvation, you are cursed because it will never happen. You cannot do that. And we see this man as he's talking with Jesus and Jesus starts reading off these things. The man proclaims that he has obeyed the Ten Commandments since he was a boy. And I love Jesus here. So Jesus says, okay, I'll play your game. And he leads him on this little exercise. He starts going over the commandments. And the guy's like, yep, 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 done it, check, check, check. And then Jesus does something else. And he takes the first commandment, which we find in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me. And he tells the young man this. There's one thing, there's just one, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. There's just one thing that you lack. See, Jesus, he puts this first commandment to the test in this man's life by telling him to give away that which Jesus knew to be the false God in his life, his money. And he says, give it away and come follow me. 
Jesus goes straight to the heart. He exposes the deceit in this man's own life. He exposes what this man is really worshiping. He's not worshiping God. He's, he's worshiping himself. And one author said this. He said, the goal isn't more money. The goal is living life on your own terms. And how true is that? If you get to the heart of having money, it's not that we want to collect a lot of green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them. That's not the goal there at all. We want more money because it gives us the illusion of control. gives us the illusion of safety and blessings and success. It gives us the illusion of importance and power in our community. It gives us the illusion of purpose in our lives and intelligence, and it makes us self-reliant. I don't have to worry about it. If I have enough money, I don't have to worry about anything else. I will be just fine. That's exactly why money can be so dangerous in our lives. It leads us to believe that that is where life is found. That money is the living water for us, and we've got to have it. And Jesus looks this man in the face, and he addresses his idolatry of money. He addresses his idolatry of self by helping him to see that he needed to, to go to his false god, that he needed to get rid of his false god, that he needed to do away with his false god so that he could connect with the one true God, the true living water. And we see that Jesus used this same strategy with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, we see that story. And in that story, Jesus tells the woman, the woman about the living water. But when she wanted to know more, what did Jesus do? Jesus said, go home and get your husband and then come back. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus tell her to go get her husband? Because Jesus knew what she was seeking as her living water. Relationship and men in her life had been her living water. That's what she was dependent on for life. And Jesus was helping her to see that she couldn't look to others to give to her what only Jesus could give to her. This young man, back to the rich young ruler, this young man's living water was money. So Jesus addresses that. He addresses money in this man's life. But don't miss the fact that Jesus' response is not only about money. Jesus' response to you is where you put your hope and your security and where your trust and your safety is. That's what Jesus is addressing. What is that false God for you? What are you seeking as your source of living water? What is it that makes you rich outside of knowing Jesus? What is it that you seek your heart to know and think, oh, if I just had more of this, things will be better? Perhaps, just like in the man in the story, it's money. Or maybe it's like the woman at the well where it's relationships. But maybe it's something else. Maybe there's something else in your life that you say makes me rich. Maybe it's your role as a parent. Maybe you seek to have people affirm you that you are the best parent ever. That You have your own like Pinterest channel on how to be a good parent. Maybe it's your role as a spouse. Maybe you put everything aside and says everything else can fall apart, but as long as I'm a good spouse, I will be good. Maybe it's the shape or the weight of your body. Maybe that's what you spend all of your time chasing and trying to form and saying, oh, if I could just lose five pounds or if I could just bench press ten more pounds, then I'll be good and everything in my life will be straight. Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe it's just the things in life that you enjoy that you put everything else aside. 
Right? Maybe you, you sell the house so you have season tickets to go watch the Lakers, the Clippers. I don't know if that would cost you a house. Clippers just cost a few bucks. But if you wanted to, you could do that. That's where you find your worth. Maybe it's your work. Maybe that's the focus of your life. If I just worked hard enough, if I just worked doing enough, it's just one more thing. I remember when I was in the military and I would go to the school or I would get deployed or I'd have this opportunity to leave the house. I'd always tell my wife, oh, this is better for us. This school will be better for me. I know it stinks right now. I know this deployment stinks right now, but this will make me better. This will help our marriage in the future. And I was just always trying to pursue the next job. I was never happy at the job I had. I always wanted the next one, and when I got it, I was like, oh, this stinks. I want the next job. I want the next job. I kept pursuing more and more and more. Or maybe it's your status and your reputation. Right? Maybe you, you, you have this Facebook life that you try to live up to. Maybe you have this fake persona that you put on Facebook, and you're like, oh, no, no, that's my real life. Everybody in here knows that ain't your real life. Everybody that looks at Facebook knows that ain't you. But we pursue and pursue and pursue. And this list could go on and on and on. But it's important to remember that rich here in this story, when Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler and tells him to give up his possessions, to give it all to the poor, Jesus is talking more than just money. Jesus is talking about what makes you rich. And what is it that you think makes you rich? And fill in that blank. What are you doing, church? Here's the question. What are you? What are we doing or what are we holding on to that prevents us from loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind? What is that thing that we're holding on to that's like, I'm going to split my time between you and Jesus? Like, I just got to get over that bar and all the extra time I'm going to use pursuing this. What makes us stop and pause? And when Jesus says, follow me, we look at it and we ask ourselves, is it worth giving this up to follow Jesus? Is it worth giving this up? What is that thing in our life? When Jesus said, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Why did Jesus say that? Was Jesus saying that in order to be a Christian that you have to sell all of your belongings? No, Jesus was never saying that. Jesus was saying that our faith and our trust and our hope and our purpose must be found in him and found in him alone. There's no room for everything else. There's no minimum standard. It's all Jesus or nothing. Jesus was saying that salvation is impossible in human terms. Salvation is impossible apart from God. But with God, right? praise God, with God, the impossible is possible. With God, the impossible is possible, even for the completely unable. And I, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole story, is that after the young man walks away sad and Jesus says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see what happens next. The people that are standing there, the people that are, are listening are saying, whoa, whoa, wait. If rich people can't make it, then who can make it? If rich, who, who can be saved if this guy, this young, rich young ruler is asking you who can be saved and you just told no and he just walked away sad? Who could be saved? This guy was wealthy and that's a sign of blessing in your life? 
Is it really? Is that the sign of blessing in your life? This guy was a good guy. This guy was well-respected. This guy was a community leader. He might have even been a religious leader. And you just said he can't be saved. If this guy can't be saved, then who can? Well, unfortunately, we can read the newspapers and find way too many of people, way too many examples of people that we have respected, people we believe that God's hand and his blessing was in their lives because they looked like they had it all together. When we just looked at their lives, according to our standards, these people had it going on and Jesus was in their life. But as we learned, that just wasn't the case. That just simply wasn't the case. And we ask ourselves, if that person can't be saved, then how can I be saved? I can't do the things that they were doing. I can't, I don't know the things that they know. I'm not as godly as that person that I thought was godly. If they can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus' response to this man was that there was still one thing he lacked. And sometimes that one thing, when we look at other translations, it can be translated to, to be the one thing you lack to be perfect. That Jesus said there's this one thing that you need to be perfect. Meaning to be justified in God's sight. That we are, we are completely made righteous. He said there's just one thing you need. Right? The, the selling the possessions, that was the task. But the purpose was to follow Jesus. If you just follow Jesus... And when we follow Jesus, we, find, we are found in him. Paul tells us we are made righteous. Paul tells us that his perfection is placed onto us. It does not come from the good within, but it comes through faith in Christ. That when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the perfect life of Christ. That means that Christ's lifelong record of perfection is credited to those who put their faith in Jesus. That Christ will see us as perfect when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust Him for our hope and our joy and our security, when we trust Him for our salvation, God sees us as good. Not only good, He sees us as righteous. God sees us as perfect when we put our faith in Jesus and follow Him. I know when I was reading that passage, I was thinking... There is no way that God would think of me as perfect. There is no way that God could look at me and be like, oh, you're righteous just like my son, Jesus. That would be impossible. Me being perfect, impossible. I have three kids, ask them. They will tell you, impossible. But it's not possible with Jesus. It's not impossible with God. When we are saved, it is then that we are able to do good works. After we are saved, and Ephesians tells us, for we uh, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Apart from Christ, we don't check any boxes of significance on our to-do list. There's nothing that we do when we pull out the law that we can say, oh, I did that, oh, I did that, oh, I did that, of things that mean anything significant. However, because of God, we can do the impossible. Not only does he check every box that we're supposed to do, but he does far more than we could ever ask. But Scripture tells us more than we could ever imagine when we trust in him for his good works. Right, this passage in Luke, it reminds us there's nothing that we can do, and it's impossible for us to earn our spot at the table. 
It is impossible for us to do anything to inherit, inherit eternal life. It is possible for us to do anything to get into the kingdom of God. It is impossible for any man to get into the kingdom of heaven by riches or by any human means. But by the grace of God, we enter the kingdom of God. By the grace of God, we enter the table. By the grace of God, we stand before the creator of all and sing glory to his name. Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when we look at the story, the rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian life without wholeheartedly following Jesus. Who think that they can sort of follow Jesus. This is a warning to those who think, well, I can have a little bit of Jesus and I can have a little bit of something else. But it doesn't work out like that. It's never Jesus and a set of steak knives. It is only Jesus. From day one, all Jesus. It is Jesus or nothing. All through scripture, we never get a, a, a label that says, hey, you can have a little bit of Jesus. But scripture makes it clear that it is Jesus or nothing. Followers of Jesus are expected to rely on Jesus alone as the one and only way to heaven. And to have a heart for God and his kingdom above all else. Not equal to, not, well, it's close, but a heart and, and um, but a heart for God and his kingdom above everything else. That is our number one priority. That is what we pour our life into. Jesus does not command every seeking sinner to sell everything and give it to the poor. But Jesus does put his finger of conviction on any areas of our lives that prevent us from following him with our entire heart. And as we look at these things, as we look at our own hearts, what is God asking us to give up to follow him? What has God put his finger on and said, hey, this is preventing you from following me. This is preventing you from going all in. What is God putting on our finger that when he, or his finger on that when he says, hey, give this up, we think to ourselves, do I want to give that up or would I rather just walk away sad? What is that thing that Jesus engages in our own lives? And I know as I've been going through this work and Good thing Jesus has ten fingers because he was able to put them in a whole bunch of places. And I just thought, man, God, that's impossible. How, how am I supposed to do that? That's impossible. And it hit me. Like, how tragic is it to be almost a committed follower of Christ? How tragic to be like, well, I almost followed him. I kind of did some things well. But here's the thing. With God... Anything is possible. See, God can save sinners who can't save themselves. That is a praise God moment. That is the but in Scripture that we always talk about, about how sinners we are, but for the grace of God. Church salvation is impossible to achieve on our own. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. Only God can put a camel through a needle's eye, and only God can give you eternal life. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you just for this time we have, and just to be reminded of what you expect. 
Lord, we just pray that we would be able to turn from whatever we're following, that we'd be able to set ourselves aside, that we'd be able to repent and turn from those things and turn to you. Lord, we are so grateful for the grace in our lives and the grace and your mercy that is new every day. Lord, we are so grateful that you loved us enough to send your son so that we could follow you. And Lord, we just pray that you'd give us the courage as you identify things in our life, as you put points of conviction in our life. Lord, we would pray for the courage that we would set them aside and turn to you and follow you and love you more. Lord, we just pray that we would learn to love you, that we would learn to live like you, and that we would help others to do the same. Lord, that you would just use us in this community and in this city in just a powerful way to magnify your glory, to, to shout your name to this community here in L.A., Lord. Lord, we just love you, and we thank you, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to follow you. It's in your son's name we ask all of these things. Amen. Church, it was great to worship with you today. I want to encourage you to come back on Friday night to the live, live stream on Friday night for Good Friday service. That will be up at 6 o'clock, and I want to encourage you to worship with, with us and with somebody Get to know somebody, call somebody, email somebody. If you're here, talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm coming over. Just invite yourself over. It's cool. We're all family. Say, I'm coming over to your house on Good Friday. Um, We would love to worship with you. And then I hope to see you next week, next uh, Sunday on Easter Sunday. We'll be here in the church. We'll also be live live streaming at 1030. Until then, have a good week. I love you, Calvary. Talk to you soon. Bye.